You are listening to Equinox, where we're striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode five. This week is brought to you by our sweet dear listeners for giving us your priceless attention. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I am joined by Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. Let's go. I'm looking forward to this one. This has been a very peculiar week. Yes. You want to get started with the crazy situation we find ourselves in? So you don't want to dive into the subject of today. You want to talk about our background and our history and what's happening in the world right now and the fact that everything is going to pot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, a big deal that, you know, the whole world is being wasted away by a virus, right? Well, there's a, a big virus and it is affecting a lot of people. And um, we'll see what happened today. Trump declared a state of national emergency. There's no more flying to Europe. Uh, no flying to China. I mean, all the school systems in Georgia here are closing for at least two weeks. Yeah, this is a this is a, a big deal. People have been thinking about things like this for a long time, but it hasn't really been since, uh, what, 1917, since we had the last really big, bad viral pandemic like this. And I think that most people today, their closer points of reference are things like television shows that have de depicted a crazy situation at hospitals for a local catastrophe or something, an outbreak of a virus, or maybe an apocalyptic movie with Dwayne The Rock Johnson or something, but this <laughs> you know feels what? apocalyptic. My, my favorite genre of all movies and books is post-apocalyptic. The whole survival thing, you know, the, the what is humanity? How good are we? How bad are we? How can we rise above ourselves and fight the zombies or survive the post-nuclear world? And I just love those stories. Yeah, the, what was the one World War Z? That was pretty good with yeah. Brad Pitt. I like that yep. one. Yeah, a lot of dead people in that one, though. But is that happening? We, we want to get your statement for the record. For the record, the coronavirus is deadly and it is dangerous. I do not believe it's going to mutate to get worse or more infective or more deadly. It's actually the opposite is probably going to happen. But that's going to take a year and 100 years from now, the thing is going to be so decayed and dilapidated. It's just going to it's going to disappear, just mm. like the H1N1 flu did in 2009. Mm. It broke down over time because it picked up too many mutations. But right now it's fresh. It's burning hot, burning fast. Wildly. Wildly. But it's also changing world society. We are located in the metro Atlanta area. Mm -hmm. Home and, of the Centers for Disease Control. Yeah. And where our ministry is located here in the United States. But that's our day job. And Rob is on ministry a lot of the time over the weekend for speaking engagements at conferences and churches. Rob, what is going on? Well, here we are uh, recording on a Friday night, and I was supposed to be on a plane right now flying to Pennsylvania. All my events this weekend are canceled, and all my events two weekends from now are canceled. Has this ever happened to your career? Oh, no. No. In January, I was in Denver, Colorado, and we had a massive snowstorm. Yeah. So I had events Saturday night, but my Sunday morning event was canceled just because no one could get to church. But no, nothing like this. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not on the road for video production. We have a studio at the office and I also have a very sweet Mac Pro setup, uh, cheese grater tower where, you know, if you're a Mac enthusiast, you would understand what that is. If you have any experience in the creative arts, you understand this is a pretty sweet setup, but it, it's over 10 years old now. My computer, it's like the Millennium Falcon. Like you got here in that thing, you're braver than <laughs> I thought. And I, well, that Mac has been around with me. I worked on a documentary project where I had to walk that Mac Pro across ice in the parking lot to get it to my car, to take it home to 
work on a video project a couple of years ago for the alien intrusion documentary. Big snowstorm we had. And uh, because we're all on lockdown now for the office, trying to be safe, not spread germs, we are working from home. So I have my Mac Pro with me again here at home and I've taken over the dining room table. You know, I'm getting, I'm eating better, hot, fresh meals. Oh yes. Well, your wife's good cook. So yeah. It's amazing. I get to see (laughs) the kids more. I get my coffee the way I like it rather than sharing the pot at the Uh, office. (sighs) It's like uh, the pioneer days when we used to work on our Mac Pros from home. Oh, I'm sorry. I have never joined the Borg. So you, you can talk Mac all you like, and I'm just going to sit here and say, yeah, that's very cute. Okay. <laughs> we are surviving. Rob doesn't have a virus, neither do I or any of our immediate family. And Actually, my biggest news that I have is that I finally launched my YouTube show. That is huge. Yes. So Biblical Genetics on YouTube is there, and BiblicalGenetics.com is now live and active. Put out my first three episodes already. The mystery of human ancestry, the mystery of personal ancestry, and the mystery of DNA sequencing. And I'm going to release episode 20 tomorrow. So with the Biblical Genetics YouTube channel, what are what is your ambition? What are you doing that's different from your, your science field research for Creation Ministries International? This is a way that I get to talk about all the things I can't talk about when I'm on the road. I have, you know, a whole bunch of pre-packaged talks that I give, and this is all the things I would want to say, but I can't say it in one hour. So maybe in the Q&A, someone asks me a question, I can give them the lowdown on a subject. Well, that's all these subjects. Tons and tons. I've, I have filmed 20 episodes, and episode 20 was about viruses, and I mentioned the coronavirus, and I made the claim, the shocking, bold claim that most viruses are good for you. And that surprises people. It's huge. I've been working on, I've been reading one of our ministries articles from, if you want to know, there's going to be a link to this in the show notes and Dr. Carter's uh, new videos. In the article alone, I was reading. Yeah, the coronavirus article, which is easy to find on creation.com. Just go there and type in coronavirus. It's really interesting. Like I know a lot of people are paying attention to the headlines, the scares, uh, their fears. They don't want to get sick and have, you know, uh, permanent side effects or something like that. You know, they're concerned for their loved ones. And those are important issues to address too. But this is also a pretty interesting time to get details about the viruses that are fascinating. And I didn't realize were true. Like I didn't realize how many viruses were good for us. And almost all of them. We carry lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different viral species in our gut. And there are more viruses than our bacteria. We have more bacteria than we have cells in our body. And I didn't know that. There's more microorganisms living in your body than maybe cell count. Yeah. You probably have about 60 trillion cells in your body, maybe more. And you have more bacteria than you have cells. I feel like a monster. I feel like a breeding ground for little monsters. Yeah. But then you have this giant viral community that's regulating the bacterial community so they don't eat you. Wow. That's a very well-designed system. We're going to have to circle back around to that another time, Rob, because I'm really getting into the virus subject right now because I I have been doing my research because, you know, I'm playing my part as a conscientious citizen. But I want to get to the main topic for today's episode. So you usually ask me what the episode is going to be about and you, you feign that you have no knowledge of it. Well, uh, I, I, this time I do, but I'll go ahead and keep to tradition. Rob, what on earth are we talking about today? Let's talk about Charles Darwin, the man. Let's talk about his legacy, his life, who he was, what he did. Because most people have no clue about who Charles Darwin was. 
I just know him for being the guy that everybody attributes to like the origin of species yeah. and evolution. He would be like the, the, I don't want to say the founding father, but he would be one of the fathers of modern science. He's definitely the father of modern evolutionary science. Even if he wasn't the first person to think of evolution and it wasn't really his brainchild, he's, he's the guy, he's the poster child. But he's a fascinating individual. Uh, he's complex. He, he does things that seem contradictory. He does things that are amazing. And he's got this backstory that is just absolutely cool. And so if we want to understand this, you know, creation evolution debate, you got to understand Charles Darwin. So let's mm -hmm. dig in. Let's, let's look at this man and see, see what he was. And we'll get it back around to the, what the creation and evolution debate is. But I do like starting with Charles Darwin. So what were the popular ideas at the time that he was coming along? Well, he was growing up at a time where, you know, most people would call themselves Christians. Most people would say they believe the Bible, but there was very little biblical application in the sciences. His um, ideas of evolution came probably 80 to 100 years after most of the geologists in the world decided that the world was millions of years old. And they based that on just looking at rocks, dirt, rock layers, fossils. Yeah. And looking at natural processes to try to explain what they see. And since, you know, there's no giant Noah's flood happening today, all they had was, you know, little little river floods and things. Oh, that little sandbar. Oh, that sandbar is a half an inch thick. Now look at the Alps. It would have taken millions of such floods to make something like the Alps. That's, that's how they worked that out. So he's grown up in that kind of environment. Uh, Church of England, he's, you know, he's English, so he's going to Church of England, but his mother was a Unitarian, so she's not, you know, theoretically even a Christian. This is before the Unitarian Universalists got together, um, became one denomination, but Unitarians back then were not classic Christians. You got to remember it was a very different time for not just philosophy, but also for religion and politics and culture. Like, remember, you got to set yourself back. Like when we were talking about the calendaring <clears throat> system last time, yeah. are you okay there? Do you, do you need a, a tissue? Do you need a cough drop? Are you, are you feeling okay, Rob? Oh, I just cleared my throat. <laughs> so it was like, Hey, everyone out there, don't look sick. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> no, I'm fine. <laughs> good, good. Remember last week when we were talking about calendars <clears throat> before we started dying, we were talking about the, put yourself in the scenario of Adam and Eve, the first man, and first woman don't know anything about calendaring. And I feel like we need to put ourselves in Charles Darwin's day because he had different challenges, theories, ideas, uh, discoveries in mind, thought that these could move and shape the world, uh, maybe put a dent in the universe kind of ideas. And what if he was right? You know, that, that would be a thing that would be huge. And you could understand why with theories that were already going on before him from the geologists saying that the earth is millions of years, he was just trying to connect, connect the dots, trying to make sense of things, wasn't he? He was making a logical deduction from what he assumed was true. Which others had not bothered to, to sort out. Oh, actually, no. Lots of other people had. Oh, they did. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. He, he, there's actually almost nothing original in Origin of Species. What? But we'll get to that in a little while. Let's right. talk about his backstory first. Yeah. So here he is. He's a, a... Oh, by the way, this is not designed as an attack on Charles Robert Darwin. We're not going to call him any names. We're yeah, not, no. We're not going to call him stupid. No, I wouldn't do that at all. He's not stupid, and he deserves respect as a person and as a scientist even. Yeah. But we are going to bring up some 
controversy. In fact, I have a couple of quotes that might make people angry, especially people of color, but I'm going to use them because they're part of the historical record. They are relevant to this issue. You, you couldn't bring up Charles Darwin and just praise him for the things you like and walk That's away right. like that made up the whole man. Yeah, because then you have a cardboard man. We don't want a cardboard version. We want a, a robust three-dimensional picture of this guy. I do too. He's the kind of guy that if I could have coffee with, you know, just like grant a wish, you know, there's maybe 20 people I'd like to have coffee with. He might be one of the guys. But if I got that coffee wish with Charles Darwin, I would actually want to get to know the real guy, not just a figment of my imagination. Yeah. But being that he was agoraphobic and never entertained um, <laughs> strangers, um, yeah, you would never be able to actually hang out with him. Oh. Anyway, I'll explain the, the mirror in his study. Oh, it's fascinating. But he's the type of person who could write really ugly things about non-European peoples. And then he turns around and he financially supports William Wilberforce. Wow. The man who almost single-handedly ended slavery in the British Empire. Yeah. So he gave money to that cause, and yet he writes things where clearly he thought he was superior to other people. It's very complicated. So that's part of the fun in this. Hmm. Just so everyone knows, I've read a lot of Charles Darwin's writings. He did. He wrote a lot more than just The Origin of Species. Multiple books, multiple papers, a whole lot of letters. In fact, I haven't read hardly any of his letters, just a few, but he was a what was called the nation of letters or the kingdom of letters or the, the, the all the intellectual people in Europe and America writing letters to each other. He wrote a couple thousand letters in his lifetime. This is like Facebook for their time. Yeah, but it's all the intelligentsia, all the leaders all the movers and the shakers, all the influencers, and they're all constantly communicating with each other. And he was in the middle of that because he was a rich guy. Mm. He wasn't some poor schmuck, you know, in a coal mining. He was sitting in a mansion because his dad was wealthy and his grandfather was super wealthy. And he kind of inherited all that, surprisingly, because he hmm. wasn't the oldest son. Hmm. That is surprising. Yes. But his older brother, uh, he got pensioned. Foul play? No, 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 no. He lived until, until he was like 81 years old or something like that. He was an opium addict. Oh. Um, but when he was in his 20s, I don't know if he finished his medical training. I think he might have finished. But then his father sat him down and said, here, son, I'm going to give you money every year and you're just going to retire. <laughs> and so Charles Darwin inherited the estate. Very strange. That is a key reason why? I, I'm not sure. Wow. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. He was still part of the family. He was the uncle. I wouldn't object to that scenario if I was in his shoes. Oh, no. that would be Yeah, both of them got a, a sweet deal because Erasmus, as his brother, never had to worry about anything again. He could mm -hmm. buy his opium and Darwin got to be... I hope he knew Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson and he got some help with that. Hmm. Actually, there's, there's a lot of interesting people back in that time. And uh, Arthur Conan Doyle didn't live too far away. Wow. Interesting. Anyway, so I've spent a lot of time reading... Um, a lot of his books, a lot of his, his writings, because I wanted to get to know him and I really want to understand this whole evolution thing. But the reason I'm doing this is 1 Peter 3.15. That's a, a commandment in, the, in our Bible that says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so here we are, we're told that we should be ready to give answers to people asking us about our faith. And you know what? I need to have an answer for Charles Darwin. Yeah. I, I need to yeah. study this man to, to really, you know, get under his skin to find out what he was about. And because of your experience, and this is no secret, 
we, we find people everywhere that wonder if his theories were accurate and still valid today, and if it should affect their faith in God, the Bible, and specifically the origins laid out in the book of Genesis. Yeah, and there's a lot of urban myths also that people have about Darwin, which we'll get to some of them. Yeah, and if they're myths too, we don't want to validate those either. That's right, that's right. We're going to correct some of them. Like the classic one is Charles Darwin recanted on his deathbed and became a Christian and rejected evolutionary theory. I remember hearing that, and so you're telling me that that didn't happen. Boulder Dash. We'll get to that at the end, though. Okay. So here's Darwin. He's born in 1809, same year as Abraham Lincoln. Interestingly, that just puts him in a historical context. His uh, family was really tight with the Wedgwood family. That's from the famous Wedgwood pottery people. You know, all the ladies listening, ooh, Wedgwood pottery. Yeah, those people. In fact, uh, Darwin's grandfather was a Wedgwood and his mother was a Wedgwood. So was his wife. (laughs) (laughs) He married his first cousin. Well, and as strange was she had more than two sisters and more than two brothers. All of her brothers and all of her sisters also married first cousins. So this was a family tradition? Most people in Carrying history, on the family legacy? <laughs> most people in history marry people closely related to them. And people with money, if you think about it, you know, a brother and a sister sit down and say, okay, look, your son marries my daughter and all the money stays, stays in the family. Here. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of things like that Ooh. on purpose. And this is a very tight family, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had an older brother. Erasmus, named after his grandfather. An incredible name. I just love Erasmus. Yeah, it's a really cool. Well, uh, Erasmus was a, a famous humanist and a, a famous scholar who put together what we now call the Texas Receptus. He was na- named after him? The, I don't know. But likely. But likely, because Erasmus wow. was a, a very famous person way back in the day. And it's, you know, I don't want to get into King James-only controversy at the moment. But the person who's almost single-handedly responsible for putting together the text that was used to translate the King James was what we call a humanist. Yeah. No, not a, a secular atheist humanist today. A classic humanist. A classic humanist. And that's, that's a very interesting little factoid there. Hmm. But um, you know, Darwin's a younger brother, so what's he going to do? So dad says, son, you got to get a trade for yourself. Now, his dad was a doctor. And he was a society doctor. So he, you know, he treated all the wealthy people, which was nice. And so he sends uh, Charles to go study medicine at Edinburgh, where his older brother was studying medicine. I've heard it pronounced Edinburgh. Yeah, I probably don't pronounce it correctly at all. Edinburgh. All right. Yeah, whatever. But I've never been there. I'm just getting the second hint, too. I'm pronouncing it. Pronouncing it. (laughs) (laughs) Me, too. I'm I'm saying it like an American hick would say it based on the way it's written. Got it? Edinburgh. Anyway, he goes to Scotland, shall we say, and he's studying medicine after he writes the origin of species we and historians have dug into some of the things he wrote we realized that this is probably where he picked up most of his ideas not in the islands not at home oh no not at all not in the islands at all he was not an evolutionist when he was in the islands we'll get there (laughs) but he picks up these ideas that dwell in his head for for decades before they finally come out on paper well even though darwin admits that he had an inordinate fondness for killing things. <laughs> I mean, he would kill little animals, he'd shoot things. There's one one episode in the um, in his biography that he, he wrote while he was on a Galapagos that he was walking around, Captain Fitzroy was doing the same thing. Captain Fitzroy, the Christian, we'll get to him in a minute. 
He's walking around with a hammer, whacking birds on the head just because they wouldn't fly away. <laughs> oh, and he has this, this story of, of how do you survive in the Galapagos where there's no water? Yeah. Well, you find a giant tortoise and you grab him by the tail and you take your knife and you cut between the tail and the shell. Oh. Which, of course, the animal would die. And then you look inside. If the bladder's full of water, that means he just came down from the heights. The turtles will actually store water in their bladder. Yeah. And over time, it gets more and more yucky. And eventually, they just pee it away. And then they go find some more water somewhere. But if his bladder's full of water, you know, it's fresh water. You can kill the turtle, cut the bladder, and drink the water. Oh, wow. Okay. And if it's not, you just let them go. It's like, oh, my. But then again, a lot of people back then, I mean, we didn't have animal rights yet. Actually, the Prevention of Animal Cruelty Societies were popping up in Darwin's time in England. But... Before that, they were really novel concepts. They were really novel concept, and people they just did things we would never do today. But he was part of that. Anyway, my point was, even though all that backstory is true, he couldn't stand the sight of blood. And his dad's a doctor, probably a surgeon. Yeah, and this is before the invention of anesthetics. Yeah, and so the operating room is bite this bullet hmm. or this leather strap. Or this piece of wood, as we saw into you, and try not to scream too loud, because <laughs> yuck. And so he could not handle that. By the way, um, very, very interesting. The invention of anesthetic, anesthetic, sorry, an, an, how do you say that? Aesthetics. No, no, an, anesthetic <laughs> or anesthetic. Yes. <clears throat> anyway. By the way, the invention of anesthetics came after a doctor was reading his Bible. And he read that, oh, God put Adam to sleep, took out his rib, and made Eve. He said, what? can we put people to sleep? And boom, here comes ether. Oh. Ether puts you to sleep. It's not a safe anesthetic, but you know, it's better than screaming. He had a good idea. He had a great <laughs> idea, and that's where it came from. So, But this Amazing. is Darwin here. He's trying to study medicine, and he's flailing. So he, he leaves. Couldn't and handle blood. Can't handle blood, but now but what? he can cut open his turtles. Yes, very odd. But now what? He's the younger brother. Dude, you're not inheriting anything. You have to have an occupation. So his dad sent him to Cambridge to study for the clergy. So the father of evolutionary biology is studying to become an Anglican priest. <laughs> and he graduates from there. Okay, so was were there other religious men? In his family tree, was that an was that a thing? Um, no, did he pretty, feel pretty like no. did he record in his journal? I feel like I'm called to the ministry because I can't stand the sight of blood. You know what was the thinking there? I'm not sure uh, because the journal I'm talking about is his journal of, on of his voyage on the Beagle, which didn't happen yet. I don't know if he had a diary earlier than that. I know he has scientific notebooks after that. Um, so I don't know what his thinking was, but he does. He he becomes you know, he graduates from Cambridge. Without ever having to open the Bible, that was the status of the Church of England of the day. <laughs> so, yeah, you become our church leaders, and we train you nothing about... Okay, if you don't know anything about Christianity, and you just heard that, and you're wondering what this, what's the big deal, that if you... Oh. <laughs> yeah, we're both shaking our heads. That, that's like saying you, you're a master chef, but you've never opened a cookbook. Yeah. It's, it, no. I've had no practice cooking. Yeah, that's essentially... So it's shocking, but this is the way the status was back then. And so he, um, but he graduates and he's calling himself a geologist. 
Huh? What? Yeah, I thought he studied theology, but no, no, he's calling himself a geologist. What well, on what grounds? Well, he had been. This sounds like a like a self made entrepreneur on the internet today. Like, how did he get the, the, to well, arrive at that? He's a classic Victorian gentleman. You're expected back then to have a you know a liberal arts education where you have a good exposure to a lot of different things, and so you should be able to handle most of the subject of the day. Now today, it's no longer true. Because it's just too much knowledge. But back then, it was like the end of the time when a person could have a very broad grasp of almost everything. Okay, so he could be, by that education, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Yeah. And pick his trade. Yeah, but he's really interested in rocks. <laughs> and so he starts being a geologist. And they don't have blood, so he's good with that. That's true. But he actually spent a summer, or at least parts of a summer, in Wales with a very, very famous uh, geologist named Adam Sedwick. Sedwick named the Cambrian era, which is in the evolutionary model, the period in Earth's history when multicellular life is first appearing. Well, Cambria is the ancient name of Wales. And he toured around Wales with Sedwick that summer. This is actually the summer before he graduated. And the next summer, he jumps on the beagle and sails around the world. So the timing here is really interesting. So he's done. He, he's calling himself... A geologist. But Sedwick is a, is a massive influence in his life. But he's got a couple of others. One of his father and the other his grandfather, they called themselves free thinkers. What did that mean for their time? Um, I would put Richard Dawkins in the free thinker camp today. But they didn't have the term atheist. They didn't have the term agnostic yet. They're just people who wanted to be free of the shackles of society and think whatever they wanted to think. So you called them free thinkers. Free thinkers. That's an interesting name. It makes sense because so much of the establishment was religious as a worldview and a philosophy. You believed in God and the Judeo-Christian ethics. It all came as part of a civilized man. Yeah. So you would be outside the norm. You'd be outside the ruling thoughts. And I can see, yeah, that's where you get the free thinker think the name. Yeah, that makes sense. It was not politically expedient yet to say I'm an atheist hmm. in early 1800s. So it's a bit of a name game. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but his his grandfather was already famous. You know, not just from the Wedgwood part, but he wrote a book about evolution. Really? Yeah. It's called Zoonomia. And, but it was. <laughs> it sounds like the like a town in the the movie Zootopia. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But evolution was not acceptable yet, so it was actually a book of poetry. Huh. It was a bunch of poems about evolution. That predates Darwin's it was origin of species. before Darwin was even born. Oh, and this is his dad? That was grandfather. Grandfather. Yeah, he, grandfather died before 1809. Darwin grew up in that house. He said later on he had almost entire passages of that book memorized. Whoa! So evolution was instilled to him from the earliest age. In fact, his grandfather... On the family coat of arms, you have like a shield and you have a diagonal across mm -hmm. a shield. A yeah. Coat of yeah, arms yeah. have that. There were three shells. Darwin's coat of arms kept the shells, but he dropped the Latin phrase. The Latin phrase that his grandfather put on the family coat of arms, which is stamped in all the books in the library that Darwin later inherited. E. Conscious Omnia. Okay. Omnia. Omni. Everything. Conscious. Conch. Shells. <laughs> E conscious omnia means all from shells. That that was his, his idea. Grandfather 
and the evolutionary influence in Charles Darwin's early life. I mean, he did not think of evolution by himself. He didn't think we were coming from dirt or a soup or pond scum. He thought we came from shells. From shells. Well, this may be as far as he got. And Darwin himself, mm-hmm. he, he mm-hmm. never tackled the origin of life. You know, he's, he's talked about, you know, from some primordial, you know, wiggling thing. Mm. We never talked about where that came from necessarily. Back right. Darwin wrote once, uh, to speculate about the origin of life, you might as well speculate about the origin of matter. Well, at least he was honest about, so I mean, that now I'm getting mean. I was going to say, at least he was honest about something in his theories. But <laughs> no, actually, no, I'm gonna, that wasn't gracious. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me correct you a little bit. Darwin wrestled and struggled mightily with his ideas. He was a, at least a person who could, on the one hand, write things that support his theory, and on the other hand, write things that argue against his theory. And he backpedaled like crazy after The Origin of Species was published. Um, so I have to give him that. Now, I don't think he was an honest man. And I don't think he was, he was, he was a lousy scientist. He never did an ex- a controlled experiment his entire life. <laughs> so as a geologist, he was a non-practitioner. Well, but he, he became a biologist. He became well accepted in the biological community. After he got done going around the world on The Origin, thinking he's a geologist, he writes basically a, a dissertation on barnacles. Okay. Barnacles are like crabs, but they stick themselves to a rock. And yeah. They're just a little, it looks like a little volcano and there's a little crab inside that sticks his, his things out and eats and you cut, cut on them if you bump into them. But I've seen the ride at Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Of course. Well, anyway, he writes what amounts to a dissertation on barnacles and elects himself, gets himself into the biological world from that point. I think he did that because he was probably already working on evolutionary ideas and he knew that he was going to talk about living things, not rocks, to do that. Uh, there's other influencing people. So said, oh, let's go back to Cedric for a second. Mm-hmm. He's a Christian, but he is um, what we would call an old age catastrophist. So he's not a, a biblical young earth guy. He's, he believes that the earth is really old and every once in a while a giant catastrophe happened and formed another layer of the rock record. Ooh. Like the Cambrian would have been a gigantic something, kablamo on a meteor strike or big flood or something. And all these jellyfish and horseshoe crabs and trilobites, they all died and got hmm. buried in the Cambrian. Interesting. And then millions of years later, another disaster formed the next layer and the next and next and next. His concept of Noah's flood was, yeah, there's some sandbars over here and some little gravelly things. That would have been the flood kind of pushing around some of the stuff on the surface but it doesn't explain the fossil record. It's just the last thing that happened in the fossil record. Oh, okay. But then decades later, later on in Darwin's life, um, a guy named Agassi and some other people, they develop what we call the Ice Age theory. Ice Age? Yeah. And the Ice Ages, all the stuff that Sedgwick was saying was evidence of Noah's flood was all Ice Age material. And boom, the Bible is completely removed from any explanation of geology from that point on. Hmm. So essentially, Sedgwick gave Darwin a falsifiable geology. And so the next summer, Darwin gets on board the HMS Beagle. Or what's going to be a two-year, turned into a five-year voyage around the entire world. The Beagle is a ship, if you're wondering what that means. Okay. HMS, His Majesty's ship. Think the USS Enterprise, but on water. (laughs) (laughs) And the captain of the ship, Captain Fitzroy, Hands Darwin as a present when he gets on board a copy of a brand new book, Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology. Lyell's a lawyer, but he writes this very, very influential book about geology. He gives the phrase, the present is the key to the past. Mm. 
and he's only appealing to slow and gradual processes. There's no, there's no catastrophes anywhere in his world. He's got a very odd view of, of um, continents moving. Unlike today, where everything moves sideways, plate tectonics, he thinks things are rising and falling very slowly over millions of years. So, you know, something sunk beneath the ocean and formed some, you know, like clams and dead fish and things and rose above, and that's Mount Everest. Hmm. Very slow, very millions of years. Did they know that there were fossils in Mount Everest then? Uh, I'm not sure because, yeah, no one had gotten up there yet. But it would have, that would have at least added some sort of yeah. supposed evidence for their theory. But I think I, that is fine. That I'm pretty sure geologists probably had rejected Lyell before they got up to the top of Mount Everest, but I'm not sure. Because Lyell's theories have not withstood the test of time. Hmm. But they were geological theories, and Darwin, wanting to be a geologist, he sucks it up. And he's going around, and he's sending letters back. This whole time he's over there, and people are publishing his letters. And so by the time he gets back, he's famous. Oh, wow. Yeah, brilliant. And then he writes a book about his journal of researches, which went through several different editions, and the stories changed in there several times. We'll get to that in a second. So in 1831, a young Charles Darwin is tapped to go on what is going to become one of the most famous voyages in all of human history. The HMS Beagle is a surveying ship that's sent to do surveying of South America, Australia, and other places of import for the, for the British. Have you ever heard that Darwin was the ship's naturalist? The ship's naturalist? Naturalist. I, I can't Does say it make no. sense no, that, no. that he would be the ship's naturalist? No. <clears throat> okay, well, he, he, he wasn't. That was the doctor on board. Charles Darwin actually had absolutely no roles on the ship whatsoever. He was free to do whatever he wanted. <laughs> he was also the third choice. <laughs> Two other people had turned down this opportunity. Whoa. Okay. Well, this is Victorian England and a Victorian English ship. The classes didn't mix. Yeah. The captain was going to be all alone for years. Oh, okay. So, so Darwin was hired as a dinner companion. <laughs> okay. That's the, what he was which gives him no responsibilities. And he ended up doing a lot of really amazing things. So he's a Lyellian geologist and he goes to places like, um, you know, the Santa Cruz River Valley in South America. And he gets the sailors to row him 110 miles upriver until they ran out of food. <laughs> okay. He, he thought he was going to cross over to the Pacific Ocean. Oh. Like the Straits of Magellan at the bottom of, yeah. of, of South America. Well, he's a few hundred miles north of that, gets in a river, and he's going to go across and down the other side to the Pacific Ocean. What? <laughs> Darwin, this was a lion geology. The continents slowly sink and slowly rise. Every time they sink, the ocean would come and make this river valley longer and would happen from both sides. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a giant glacier at the front end of the <laughs> river valley that he never saw. Really? Yeah, he never, he didn't get that far. And, but he wrote, you know, no action of any flood could ever, that was almost a quote, that could, he's basically, he's trying to explain this river valley, saying there's no way a flood could ever cause this, arguing against the biblical flood. Why did that even come across his mind? Uh, because he's trying to explain everything with Lyell's geology. Okay, that's on his mind, and he's trying to flesh that out. Yes, but today, geologists look at this river valley and say, oh, this is caused by a flood, even a secular geologist. Oh, uh, uh, whoops. It's an Ice Age flood. During the Ice Age, the, the glacier was like, you know, a mile high. Today's 100 feet high. It was like a mile high, and as it was melting, a giant pool of water backed up behind the glacier, and the ice cracked. And this massive 
water thing ran for 200 miles to the ocean and carved a 10 mile or wider canyon wow. through solid basalt, which is really hard rock. We documented that, by the way, in our Darwin, the Void to Shook the World, which mm -hmm. a lot of this is based on. A lot of my notes here are actually from 10 years ago. Sure. and But they're still good. So, yeah, Darwin hasn't been doing much lately. That's right. Now he's, he's kind of dead, yeah. Um, but So Darwin knows nothing about modern geology. Mm -hmm. Doesn't know anything about plate tectonics, doesn't know how fast layers can form. He doesn't know how fast rivers can cut uh, valleys. And he has no idea how many soft fossils we would find, like jellyfish, and things like that. That Right, because a lot of people would be thinking that even if you had a fish fossil, at least it has a skeletal structure, right, and parts. those are hard. Darwin wrote, no organism wholly soft can be preserved. Like a jellyfish, but they have. But why would Darwin write something like that? Well, he hadn't seen one for one. But slow and gradual. Yeah, because a, the a fossil is a key takes to the a past. long time. Yes, yeah. and if, if, if a jellyfish landed on the bottom, it would be consumed long before it could ever be buried, so therefore you would never get fossil jellyfish like mm. we find all over the world. <laughs> so he just had a, a very bad uh, view on geology, and it was very, very wrong. Too bad he wasn't a practicing geologist. Yeah, he, he was never, he wasn't experimental anything. He was a theoretician. Okay. He was more of a philosopher than a scientist. See, that's, that's the thing, is like, I, I'm, I appreciate Darwin, I'm interested in what he's coming up with as a one person who appreciates creativity and coming up with things out of thin air to another guy who does the same thing. I just want him to be a practitioner. That's what I'm saying. I nice. want him to crack open some rocks. I want him to do an experiment. Well, the closest thing to an experiment that I found is he, um, later on in his life with another guy, they spent a long time, you know, quote, experimenting with seeds by soaking them in salt water for months, sometimes up to a year, and then planting them to see if they'd sprout. And what Darwin showed us was that many different species of plants can survive a very long time being immersed in salt water. So thank you, Mr. Darwin. We now know how seeds survived Noah's flood. Oh, snap. Shazam. <laughs> but it wasn't a controlled experiment. It wasn't like he took some in, not or you know, 50 seeds and what's the germination rate? He just soaked a bunch of things and planted them and said, oh, some of them sprouted. Hmm. But still, really yeah. appreciate that. But so Darwin gets off this voyage around the world. He's famous now. He goes on the lecture circuit for a couple of years. And then he collapses. Okay. Just a couple of years later, it, the doctor sends him out to the country for an extended hmm. period of time because his heart is doing weird things. He, oh, so he actually has a medical complication. And it gets really weird really fast. In 1839, a couple years later, he marries his cousin, Emma. Maybe not the best idea with the health problems. But. Yeah, probably not. In fact, his sister, Susanna, also married a Wedgwood. So hmm. this family is like a, the, the family tree is like a spider web. Anyway, and he becomes a recluse. And was that because of his health concerns? There's nobody knows. Really? See, being that he was in this community of letters. I could understand if he was embarrassed. It felt like he couldn't keep up with a lively crowd. Oh, no, not embarrassed at all. He wrote all these different people, lists and lists and lists of his weird symptoms, including nighttime flatulence. <laughs> okay. Well, yes, yeah, I don't think I would ever tell people that I did that. Exactly. Cramps and pains and extended periods of vomiting. He kept oh. a bowl in a little cupboard near his desk to throw up in because he threw up so often. Shoot. Medical doctors have tried to analyze his symptoms and no one can figure it out. It doesn't match any known disease. Now he did probably have Chagas disease when he was in South America, but he recovered from that 
And this probably not was the cause, but it started about the same time he started opening up his books on evolution. Starts, you know, writing notebooks and jotting, jotting notes down, but no one can understand it. And it's very odd, but he, he becomes agoraphobic. He's afraid of crowds. He's isolating himself more and more. Now he's going to have 10 kids eventually, and seven of them would survive to adulthood. So he's not totally mentally unfunctional. And he loved his wife and his wife, wife loved him back. And that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. But he, he would sit at his desk in his big palatial mansion and called Downhouse, and he would leave his study doors cracked. And from there, he could look down the hallway. And at the end of the hallway, he had a full-length mirror right next to the front door. So when the door opened, he could glance up and see who was at the door, and they couldn't <laughs> see him. And if it was an unannounced visitor, he'd run away. Oh. He said oh. that if he got caught at unawares, he would throw up for three days. What? Oh. Yeah, it, that doesn't sound medical. It sounds psychological. It, it's something... This, the man was very odd. Yeah. It, it's interesting that they took you know, his friends, got him to write The Origin of Species after Wallace already writ, wrote the whole idea down. So Wallace was should be credited, but he was lower class, so he couldn't be credited. This is Victorian society. Oh. They took a man that they could manage, a formerly famous man who was pretty much housebound. Mm. Now, he did go to the British expedition, and he did go to zoo a couple times, but he was pretty much by himself in his house. And he did not, even though he wrote The Origin, he didn't promote it. Huxley did. Huxley's last name was Darwin's Bulldog. Yeah, Thomas Huxley. Yeah, and his grandson Aldous Huxley wrote Brave New World. Hmm. Oh, yeah, this whole very uber-liberal, you know, intelligentsia of people. Yeah, they're all plugged into that. Anyway, Darwin is manageable. So after The Origin of Species is published in 1859, his friends buy up lots and lots of copies, and they send it to every person in academia, religion and politics see this is not the myth or the legend of charles darwin that i'm familiar with because you would have thought based on the legend and the myth that he was a hero of science who came up with original ideas and he slaved over his writings with uh, field tests and science in the laboratory behind his kitchen. And then he would have written this scholarly work, and then he would have self-promoted promoted it and forked out the money to get it out there, and that he would have campaigned and wrote letters to everyone, please read my very important work. Now his friends did that for him. <sighs> Every person of influence in Britain, Europe, and America was all of a sudden talking about one book mm. overnight. It was the most brilliant media campaign probably in world history. Wow. And it caught everyone like a lightning bolt because he finally said what everyone was already thinking. And he's the first person to come out with it in public, not in poetry, but in public with this book called On the Origin of Species. Now, it's not his first book. He'd already written his journal of researches about, you know, traveling around the world on, on the Beagle and just, just funny things. Um, he wrote a book about coral reefs. Yeah. I have a PhD in coral reef ecology. So coral reefs is a big deal to me. Well, I've heard his book. It's delightful. It's this guy. He's like, you know, going around the atolls in the Pacific Ocean, having no idea how to explain it. He's just coming up with these really fantastic ideas that most of which were correct. Wow. His theories and ideas and hypotheses of how, how coral reefs form. Now, one thing he did get wrong was the idea that um, a land, like a volcano, it's slowly rising out of the ocean or um, slowly sinking beneath the ocean, or water that's slowly coming up, using Lyell's ideas, 
that the first thing that would form around a volcano would be like a, a, a fringing reef. And as the volcano sank and sank and sank, it would get wider and wider and wider. And the cone of the volcano dips beneath the ocean. Now you have an atoll. There's a hole in the middle of it. It's not true. Yeah. Not at all true. Huh. But that is an idea that most people have in their heads about how coral reefs form. It's just bad. Anyway, so he writes a book on coral reefs. He writes The Origin of Species. And then the firestorm breaks out. Everyone starts talking about it and people start complaining because he was an incautious writer. He didn't document his sources. He didn't even document the parts of zoonomia that he copied over into the origin of species. Ooh. He didn't credit other people with ideas. Person who invented the term natural selection wasn't in there. He was a little bit offended. The people who wrote about natural selection prior to him, it's like Darwin, we wrote about this here, 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 and here, and here, and here, and here. And yeah, there's almost nothing original in origin of species. And if he had not pretended that it was his own idea, it would have been just fine. Mm. But what we see is after edition after edition after edition, he's constantly adding things. Oh, yeah, this person did this and this person did that. And oh, this person thought of this. Da, da, da. So he's, he's like running backwards the whole time and he hates it. Mm. He really hates it because in 1871, so 12 years later, he writes the book called The Descent of Man. And this is finally when Darwin addresses human evolution. So he not didn't touch humans species, at all yeah. in The Origin of Species. Not even, not even remotely, never talks about people. But in Descent of Man, he talks about the origin of people. And at the same time, he distances himself from natural selection. Yeah, well, okay. He said, I put too much, too much uh, thought into that theory. And he talks about you know, group selection and kin selection and, and things like that. And just, it's a totally different book. So which is our modern evolution based on? Uh, none of it, because no one really agrees with Darwin about uh, okay. the origin of species or how species change. Hmm. The plot thickens, y'all. Yeah. And he, later on, he wrote a book called uh, Emotions and Men and Animals. He's trying to say that there's no difference between people and monkeys or people and dogs even. It's just a matter of degree. They have the same emotions we have. Is the first book, the first scientific book that used photography and is the first scientific book that used fraudulent photography. Oh, come on. <laughs> Photoshop? Uh, of the day. I guess Adobe wasn't around then. <clears throat> no, but they could still fake it. Now, one of the pictures it turns out to be his co-author's wife who was sneering they call it the sneer it's supposed to be a candid you be able to now capture people in the moment for the first time ever you know this is when they figured out the horses actually lift all four feet over the ground when they run right and so they captured this woman sneering well no it was a photographer's wife and she posed it so if you're trying to compare human emotions to animal emotions and you're faking your pictures what good is that? And there was another one, a, a very, it is bad. They, they called it fear. It's a man. He's like, his, his eyes are wide. And it's his, he's like grinning backwards, like, ah, like, like that kind of a look. And it's supposedly a photograph. And it wasn't. They stole it from another book. It was an insane patient. And the doctors are experiment with electrodes and say, hey, if we put this electrode here, it makes his muscle twitch. <laughs> and they put electrodes on his head and they made his, all his muscles pull back. Ouch. And this picture in Darwin's book, they erased all the wires. <laughs> and it was a woodcut, the original one. And somehow they made it look like a photograph. Wow. And this is fraud. So, Rob, I was going to ask you here in the last minutes of this episode, we're, we're going to have to talk about this more. Okay. Probably turn it into a two-parter. What I'm thinking is, because you've introduced the origin of species, and what is the title of the second book? Not, we're skipping over the Shells book. What is the other one about the, the descendant of man or 
The, the Descent of Man. Yeah, The Descent of Man, 1871. Okay. What is your opinion on those? If you had to give them a review, you know, so far you're just covering the facts. If you were reading the thing in modern, modern English and you weren't being, you were not drawing comparisons too much to modern science, would you say, what would you say about these reads? Darwin was absolutely wrong about everything in The Descent of Man. Mm. He was wrong about human history. He was wrong about races and he wrote some very, very bad things about non-European people that are disgusting to read and totally not politically correct. How long after writing Origin of uh, Species did he write this one? 12 years. 12 years later. Yeah, 12 years later. Did he defend the second book or did he back away from this later? Um, I don't know because he's an old man by this point. But he was pulling away from Origin of Species. Okay. He definitely was pulling away from Origin of Species. We're going to have to do another episode on Charles Darwin, obviously, because there's so many fascinating things about his life. Mm -hmm. But we'll, when we come back, we'll discuss um, the Galapagos tortoises and the fact that Darwin acknowledged that he completely missed evolution when he was on the Galapagos. It's an urban myth that he, that he thought of evolution while on the Galapagos Islands. It's simply not true, and he wrote it. And join us next time to find out when he died. No, I'm kidding. I'll tell you now. He died April 1882. Okay, so he's yeah, 10 years, 11 years before he died, he wrote he writes um, The Descent of Man. Yeah, he died at the age of 73. So I can understand if he was kind of sort of retired at that point and didn't want to defend that second book so much. Especially if he was sick. Did people during the end of his lifetime understand that these were made up or that these were bad ideas in The Descent of Man? Um, no, because the intellectual community closed ranks. In fact, the, uh, the Duke of Argyle... A famous man, political commentator of the day, wrote about a um, a reign of terror at the hands of the early Darwinists. Okay. As they were making sure that their guys got into all the important positions and excluded everybody else. Oh. And so, no, rough. Darwin wasn't, you know, the, the, the bad things in his theory and the bad things in his science, it took decades and decades and decades, sometimes over 100 years to root these things out. We'll also talk about uh, Darwin's finches. And three different versions of the story as he's trying to fix his own record. Because we call them Darwin's finches, but he didn't even know they were finches. <laughs> and he mislabeled all the samples. <laughs> of course he did. Yes, we'll talk about a little bit about Darwin versus Mendel. Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics. Uh, Darwin's rejection of natural selection. People who hated Darwin. And they wrote, I mean, his own mentors wrote excoriating things about, nat about um, the origin of species when it came out. Uh, we might talk, touch on his pangenesis theory, which is a very odd, it's not Mendelian genetics. It's, uh, it's almost Lamarckian. Oh. You know, the inheritance of acquired characteristics. And then we'll deal with his views on race, which will make people mad. And they should make people mad because they're abhorrent. And then we'll deal with his religion and the fact that he died an atheist. He did not convert in his deathbed. That's another urban myth. And basically he died a lonely bitter, suffering, sick, old man mm. with absolutely no hope for anything. Mm. And it's a really sad ending. Yeah. Well, uh, mm, complicated guy. Yeah. But it is important to understand him as well as we can. Then we can go into the 21st century science and explore the ways that this has affected so much up to the present. Rob, there's one other nice thing, though. We could leave everybody on a happy note. What is that? We have updated the cover art. And oh, yes, we have. everybody has already seen it. Yes, it's not a secret anymore. The original cover art, Rob and I liked. Yeah, we liked it a lot. I thought it was awesome. 
the the problem was how we came about it because we were both working really hard in the name of the show and then we were hurrying to record episode one so we had to brainstorm super fast for the cover art design and i hadn't the time to really give it much consideration it never occurred to me until someone pointed out and i'm Uh oh yeah so if you are familiar with our day jobs you may understand that the ministry we work at cmi has a logo that logo looked an awful lot like our cover art and that was white our ours is purple whoops yeah yeah, it wasn't on purpose (laughs) what happened was i remember asking you when we were looking at photoshop speaking of which I said, so what does an Equinox look like? And you said, well, one side's this, one side's that. It's got to be this curvature. You know, right down the middle. And there you go. We got CMI's logo. And, <laughs> and so, so now we have a new revised, um, better, prettier, interesting logo. Joe Design. In my gut, this was, thank you. And uh, in my gut, this is the logo that, logo. This is the cover art that I had in mind. I just hadn't actually put mouse to screen yet and designed it and so when we said we got to redesign this it was because we had several friends and colleagues who said wait a minute but isn't that and Hmm. i said no 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 no. okay we got to change this it's almost like when charles darwin wrote the origin of species and he realized that every single thing he did was a copy from somebody else and he had to go backwards and fix it all and it took him decades but we only took a couple of weeks Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Our Quest. Uh, if you've been enjoying, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend about it. Maybe your dad or a relative uh, besides your dad. If you want links to what we have discussed, you will find what, them available. What does that even show. mean? I'm just saying if our listeners are listening. But what if they have a mom? <laughs> but what if they're an orphan? <laughs> so... If you've enjoyed listening, be sure to subscribe and you can find more about what we have discussed. We have show notes. Rob has done a great job of collecting show notes. So if you're interested in hopping to some of the things that Rob was using along the way to research for the podcast, you'll find them in the show notes. And if you want to help out Rob, check out Biblical Genetics on YouTube. Check out his videos. Uh, They're great. Uh, Keep watching and listening. Uh, you will find Dr. Carter on Twitter. He is at Bible Genetics. I am at JCS Darnell. And the podcast is at Podcast Equinox. If you have any questions for us to discuss in future episodes or science topics, questions, please pass them along. We actually turn those topics into whole episodes from time to time if we like them. As always, Rob, this has been a pleasure. Uh, for me too. I'm really, really enjoying working with you on these things. I hope the audience is also. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. So thank you for joining us on Equinox. Thank you.